So as we come to this uh, portion of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, we, of course, uh, on the heels of of the beginning of the chapter and Pastor Austin's word last week about all that we need for our salvation is already done, as we have been building through this uh, incredible book the sense of, of what it means to have come to Christ and then question uh, for the Hebrew reader, uh, again the writer to the Hebrews, the question that they begin to fall, they began to fall into, is is Jesus enough? And some of them, of course, uh, inclined to slide back into the ritual and rule of Judaism, uh, the Spirit of God prompting this writer. Uh, to write this letter to them, which now is uh, canonized for us and speaks to every believer after the cross of Jesus Christ, who may come to Christ at some point and then ask that question, is Jesus enough? Is there something else I'm to be doing? Is there some other ritual I'm to involve myself in? But he has clearly laid that solid understanding that not only is Jesus enough, but he is the only way in which a relationship with God Almighty can begin and have its uh, eternal end. And in doing so, sending his son to the cross at Calvary. Some of you who've read your Bible know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was there that uh, the Lord sweated as he was praying. We're told, as it it were, uh, blood. There's a scientific uh, explanation for that, but so deeply was he pressed to uh, take upon himself willingly the sin of all mankind. Father, if, if it be possible that this cup pass from me, let it pass. And the Father's answer was given that night as he was arrested, tried unjustly, and yet willingly laid his life down for you and I. Because he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The author has laid clearly this fundamental truth about now the old covenant has passed and a new way in which Everyone is to relate to God, to have relationship with God, to have fellowship with God, to walk in the fullness of God, comes by way of this new covenant. And he brings us in verse 19 to this word again, therefore. It is the 19th use of this word of 28 times in this book. Building upon building upon building upon building of doctrinal truth that Christ is the way. And he wants his reader 
as the Spirit of God would want us as readers this morning, as students of the Word, as those who have committed our lives to Christ, to know these central truths that we're about to uh, remind ourselves of, maybe discover for the first time, or again be brought to. Verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. What he does is he gives his reader three things that they have, and then he gives to his reader five things that they are to do with what they have. And knowing that those things fall in the text very easily and clearly, I chose to just go with the flow and title the message, Three Things We Have, Five Things We're to Do. And the first of which is what we have is a boldness to enter the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. It is interesting that in the original language, that word boldness also can be defined as confidence. Therefore, having confidence. Uh, the King James phrases it a little bit different in that it says, having therefore boldness, having therefore confidence, and brings to you and I as a student this morning that there's, there's a grammatical truth that becomes important in the reading of that sentence. What truth is that? The grammatical truth has to do with what we call the, the tense of the word uh, boldness uh, and pairing it with having. What the Greek language is saying is that this is not something that you get once in a while. This is not something that comes and goes. This is something that you are given at the very moment that Christ enters your life. At the very moment that Christ takes up residence in your heart as your Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit deposits, I mean, can you get over that? I can't. Deposits a boldness and a confidence to enter the holiest of holies. Now you might say, well, well, but at times I don't feel that confidence. At times I'm unsure if I can just, you know, walk up to the front door of heaven and, and go in. And yet... That lack of boldness or lack of confidence, beloved, I would say this morning is only a result of, of not knowing what you've been given and how constant and consistent that gift is given to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we don't come in our own confidence. We don't come in our own, um, not confidence, we don't come in our own strength. We don't come proudly to the throne room and the holy place of God. You remember, as we read in chapter 9, that under the old economy, the high priest, who uh, recall what the role of the priest was, is that he was to stand before the people on behalf of God, and then he was to 
stand before God on behalf of the people. And that high priest, he once a year, only once a year would he go into, whether it was the tabernacle or at the time of the temple, to go past the second veil into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the Holy of Holies, there to offer, offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. But first he would go and offer, he would also bring, go in there not without blood for himself. And so can you imagine only having like one day in a year that you could go and be close to God? Uh, all right, let's all get our calendars out, right? I'd like to go on September 11th. And yet here we are on the shadows of, you know, 9-11 when our nation was attacked and there was this rumbling in the, the heart of American citizens when we were threatened by the confidence that our, we thought our borders provided. And do you recall what happened back then? All of a sudden, churches were full and people were praying. And they were asking God to intervene. <clears throat> Why? Because our sense of peace and safety had been shaken. And as we remember that event today, and there will be memorials throughout the day, I'm sure, <clears throat> we remember at the core of, of that was that uh, our, our sense of peace and safety in this great nation of ours had been shaken. And so many turned to God to say, God, will you restore that? Does it need to take, here's an interesting question, just thinking about as we're sharing this morning, does it need to take a global crisis, a national crisis, of that kind of magnitude to cause you and I to, to run to God? And to draw near to him. Answer, it should not. Because not, yes, he is there in crisis. But he stands on the side, side saying, come at every opportunity. Come boldly confidently because of the blood of my son into my presence. And I wonder if the church, not you personally, but I mean the church corporately, really understands or, or embraces or wraps themselves around this, this holy invitation of every moment, of every day, of every hour. Because it's there. It's there right now. Because of the blood of Jesus, we have a confidence to enter the holy. Not proudly, but humbly. 
The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Come, he says, because of the blood of my son. Second thing that we have is as born-again Christians, is we, we've been given a new and living way, verse 20, into this holy of holies through the veil, that is, his flesh, we read, that he consecrated for us. Consecrating it, he set it apart. We have a new and living way into this holy place. Notice the words new and the words living. That would imply something. It would imply that there was something old and there was something that was dead. You remember on the cross, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Repeating Psalm 22 and declaring to the religious that were around that cross, declaring to them, go back home and open your scrolls and read the rest of Psalm 22 because it speaks of me. And in that loud cry from the cross of Calvary, we read in the Gospels that he then breathed his last breath and he gave up the spirit. And at the very moment that that happened, the veil, the second veil in the temple, Herod's temple, tore from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top. In other words, impossible that someone went in there and, and with a tool or a knife of some sort and began at the bottom to rip it in a pull. No, it, it tore from the top to the bottom, signifying that now the way into the holiest of all had been made available through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that this way is not only new, but it is a living way. That the ordinances and the sacrifices that were, were and are, even today, attributed to Orthodox Judaism, which wrapped themselves around ritual, the adherence of the Sabbath, can't do any things on certain given days, and if you break any one of those laws, and there are uh, Protestant denominations that have a whole lot of rules and rituals that say if you don't do this, don't do that. If you do this and do that, that your, your salvation may be in question, your Christianity may be in question, certainly your relationship with Jesus Christ is in question. And, and that the declaration here is that ritual and rule has died. Now, we're not talking about you can live, you know, because should we therefore live in sin because grace abounds? Certainly not, Paul said. 
The grace of God is not a license for us to live a sinful life and say at the end of our last breath, it's okay, I'm going into heaven anyway, I'll just scoot in. God forbid. But what grace does say to us is that there is no ritual or rule that is going to bring you closer into the presence of God. This is a living way, a new way, a living way in which your volition, your own choice and decision, God will not violate your will. He will invite you into his presence. He will invite you into a relationship. He will invite you into depth. But he will not force. That's why he gave you and I volition and a will. We have a new and a living way into this holy, through the veil that is his flesh which he consecrated. He set it apart. This is the way in which you come into the holiest well. The third thing that we have is a high priest over the house of God. There in verse 21. And having, same Greek grammar, it's a constant, a high priest over the house of God, which uh, which is important this morning for us to remember, is that though the writer of the Hebrews is seeking to uh, maintain and retain the attention of the reader, i.e. a Hebrew, i.e. who believed that the presence of God was in the physical house of God, that this truth about the blood of Jesus and Jesus himself now being a high priest over the house of God would remove the need for the Arianic priesthood to which the reader, the Hebrew, would go, well, who's then watching over uh, the house? And the writer is saying, we have Jesus Christ watching over that house. And the reader would say, but I thought now that the temple is only secondary, that, that the body of Christ is the house of God, and the, the writer to the Hebrews is underscoring that truth. Correct. Christ watching over his house of which you are. For he does not dwell in a building made with hands. Know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 3.9, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. You and I, as Christians this morning, are the work of his handicraft. And guess what? He's, he's building away in your life chipping away at the things that he would like to alter, underscoring and reinforcing the things that he loves. You've heard the old adage, right? Destitute and downtrodden young man walking across the street happens to fall upon a contractor on the ground. And the contractor has all kinds of 
tools laid out and hammers and drills and wood and he's hammering and nailing and screwing and this individual looks at him and says, I, what is it you're working on? And looking up into the eyes of this person that he could tell just needed the truth of the gospel, he said, well, I'm working on this down here so that it fits up there. And he pointed to the spire in a church. And that individual understanding was immediately open to where, you know, God works on us down here so that when we're translated to there, it's, it's not culture shock. I mean, should we not be walking with a, a heavenly mindset right now? Do you love to spend time in the worship of God? Do you love sp spending time with the people of God? Do you love spending time in the presence of God? Guess what eternity is going to be like? Just saying. I hope that's true of you this morning. As First Timothy says, uh, Paul to Timothy says in First Timothy three fifteen, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. The pillar of truth. We are the house of God. And Jesus is our high priest watching over us. We have a new and a living way into his presence that we can enter with confidence because of the blood that he has shed. All right, so what are we to do with what we have? Five things. Uh, we'll go through them quickly. Verse 22, uh, if you'll read it with me, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the first thing we're to do with what we have is to draw near to the Lord. You might notice that the author underscores with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, and with uh, our bodies uh, sprinkled, our conscience sprinkled. Uh, Morgan tells us, G. Campbell Morgan tells us, as it relates to drawing near, that there was an appeal, the appeal to me is not a call to prepare myself or to make a way for myself to God. It is simply to come to draw near, to enter in. This I do through the great high priest, but this I may do through him without faltering or without fear. Isn't it a beautiful thing that I don't have to prepare myself to enter into his presence, that he says, no, just come. What's, been, what's needed for you to come has already been taking place. Bodies washed is, of course, a reference to water baptism. There were many rituals in which water was used in various religious ceremonies, but the writer is referring, of course, to that 
that outward declaration that I've invited Christ to save me from my sin and to be my Lord. And that our hearts are sprinkled. Uh, this certainly deals with God's ability to wash our conscience as we step into the waters of baptism and by faith receive Christ. We're to draw near. Secondly, we're to hold fast. Verse 23 says, uh, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now we are exhorted in this second thing of what we're to do is is to hold fast. It is uh, actually a sailing term that has to do with securing the vessel to a given uh, area. And we are to hold tightly to the confession of our hope. Obviously, there was a wavering going on. There was doubt. There was question in the mind of the Hebrew. And so the author here is endeavoring to underscore that you confessed Christ to be the Son of God. You confessed Christ to have died on a cross and shed his blood for the penalty of your sin. You confessed that that blood has paid the price for your sin to God the Father and that you are now um, justified in the eyes of the Father because of the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ that no longer do I have to worry about whether uh, I'm going to do the right things in order to know that I'm going to enter eternal uh, eternity with God Almighty. And that was my hope. Oh, but man, I, 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 I blew it yesterday. My attitude was really nasty toward a person or you know I'm I haven't been to church in six months. The building's gonna fall down if I come in. I well I, I know the Bible has some truth in it, but you know I'm not sure if I really believe everything in here. And you know one thing starts leading to another and next thing you know you're thinking or I won't speak for you, but I'll speak for someone parenthetically or theoretically. Next thing you know, that person is beginning to think that their position in heaven is dependent upon their faithfulness to do this, that, or the other. Now, I know, you know, you might question, so, well, are you saying is heaven free? And, you know, I just go, and, and once I've committed my life to Christ, I'm guaranteed. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says, you shall be saved. Why would we question that? Yeah, but you know, that guy is not living like a Christian at all. That gal over there, I've, I've, it's been a long time since I've seen them, you know, exuding any kind of fruit. And Matthew 7, 1 says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Verse 5, 
hypocrite. First remove the plank out of your eye and then you'll be able to see clearly enough to, to remove the speck out of your brother. Are we to stand in judgment of that? No. Because our position in heaven and our position in the body of Christ, last words there, verse 23, for he who promised, you see, he who promised is faithful. It's based on the faithfulness of Christ. And I'm very grateful for that. I'm extremely grateful for that. So, we're to hold fast to that confession. We're to draw near. We are to, thirdly, consider one another. Notice the word and in verse 24. It says and. So it's connected. Yes, we're to draw near. We are to hold fast. And we're to consider one another, verse 24, in order to stir up love and good works. Third thing we're to do is to have others in our view. Uh, Austin, for a lot of years, I don't know if it's still there, maybe some of you know, but he used to have this sticker on his bumpers that just said, others. That, that a walk with Christ is an others-centered life. Did we get that in the memo? Uh, the day that we signed up to say, Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you for saving my. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for bringing me into your family, oh God. And he says, all right, now, it's not about you, but it's about my Father and about others. For you are to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and you're to love others as yourself. So, with what we have, we are to consider others, thinking of others, but there's, there's a, a specific purpose in the verse that we are to consider others uh, in order to, what two words, stir up. Now, beloved, I just, I know I'm going to run out of time. I'm out of time. But is there not something in the world that, it's just so, it's almost base, but you would get it. You know, there are those that know how to stir the pot. And it's not necessarily for good things that they stir that pot. And I don't know where the world got that phrase, but I'll tell you where God Almighty gets it. It's right here. He says, we are to stir one another up with two things in mind, love and good works. You sit with someone and you're talking with someone, ask them, hey man, how's your relationship with your wife? You, you ladies sitting with another sister, how, how's your relationship with your husband? Are you treating him, you know, tenderly and wonderfully? Kids, young people, you know, how are you doing with your parents? Are you walking 
in submission, having a hard time with what it is they're putting upon you, but you know, you've gave your life to the Lord and it says that we're to you know, we're to obey our parents and the Lord. Parents, how are you doing with your kids? Are you being harsh with them? Are you making them a priority, spending time training up them up in the how you do with your employer? Are you really having a rough time, but you know that because Christ is is guiding and directing your life that you're to you're to trust him that he's working something out good. I mean, that's how we're supposed to stir one another up. We're not supposed to get in there and just kind of commiserate on the things that are hard and go, yeah, that's pretty hard of them, isn't it? That's pretty bad of them. Oh, you're you're justified in feeling that way and treating them bad and all that. You get where I'm going with this, right? We're supposed to stir one another up to love and to good works. How involved in the work of Christ are you today? What part of your life do you commit for the work of good works? Now, out of time, man. Family is the work of Christ. Don't, don't over-categorize this. I mean, the husband, the dads, moms, going to work, going to do your job, that can be, you know, you can do that as unto the Lord. But when we talk about good works, in this context, what the author is referring to as well is a specific um, amount of time in your life, whether that is daily, weekly, monthly, where you sacrifice something of yourself for the sake of the kingdom of God. In other words, it requires sacrifice, and it's not for you, but it's somehow to further the gospel. And so I'm going to stir you up this morning. How, you know, how are you doing there? Because we're to stir one another up to love and to good works. I'll close with these two. Not forsaking the gathering together of ourselves. Verse 25, we are, that's what we're to do with what we have. Boy, weren't we glad we had this mandate when COVID hit a couple years ago. We could stand on this and tell a anti-Christian governor that, no, we have a higher authority in the word of God and we're going to gather. I have met Christians through my life that say, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm a Christian, but the church thing, I really don't like churches. I'd just rather go to the mountains and om, you know. Okay. But that's not what this says. This says that if you are a part of the body of Christ, you are to regularly gather with other believers. That can be in a home, can be in a church building, but you're to regularly gather. It's an assembly. You think about how the first church started. I mean, it, it started in homes. And lastly, verse 25, the second half, we're to exhort one another. Webster's Dictionary defines exhort as to incite by argument or advice. 
In other words, to get someone thinking and that thought process would move them to action, to incite by argument or device, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching, that a day is coming, the day, capital D right there, the day is coming. Christ is going to return and that we would exhort one another about the importance of our gathering often in light of that truth. So what we have, we have a boldness in the blood of Christ. We have a new and living way through the veil. We have a great high priest watching over us. What we're to do is to draw near, hold fast, consider one another Don't forsake assembling, and let's continue to exhort. That's what I have for us this morning. Shall we pray? Team, we come. We pray with me, please, Lord. We thank you for your word. Pray that these truths, uh, though some of us may see them as familiar. Others of us may be seeing them for the first time. And all of us know them to be eternally true. That, Lord, you would take this word and allow it to find its place of application in each of our lives. Every household represented here this morning watching through uh, television, listening through some audio device. Lord, that each one of us would embrace these truths in our own personal lives. Lord, we need you desperately. And we see the day approaching. And you have reminded us that we are to exhort one another and consider one another. So Lord, this morning, remind us to draw near all through this week and to know the beauty of your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.